Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Aline uh, is very excited. I'm very excited as well, actually, because today History Hack becomes the official fangirls of the Hawker Typhoon. Alina, who's with us? So we have Matt Bone with us, who is a historian and researcher specialising in Second World War aircraft. And he is here to talk to us about, guess what? The Hawker Typhoon. Exactly. He's slightly obsessed, aren't you, Matt? A little bit, I'm afraid, yes. We're going to indulge you. We're going to indulge you today. Why? Why are you obsessed with this one aeroplane? Well, it's, it's a fantastic bit of kit that didn't quite work to start with. And I think that's what I like about it, because most of the things I start out with, I'm rubbish at. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> It's like the underdog, isn't it? It is. And it's it's completely forgotten. You know, outside of of D-Day and typhoons firing rockets, that's about it. But the overall story of the aircraft and the the men who who flew it, the women who delivered it, um, it's just extraordinary. And, you know, whenever we get to to chat about it, it's um, you can just literally see people's eyes opening up and realizing that there's something more to Second World War aviation than Spitfires. Let's not get carried away. Let's start. What is the Hawker Typhoon? So the Hawker Typhoon is essentially the replacement aircraft for the Hawker Hurricane. Um, designed by the same guy, Sidney Cam. Um, and in the late 30s, when the, the Hurricane had just started entering service with the RAF, um, he sort of saw the need for taking the design a bit further. Essentially, the, the Hurricane is a biplane with the top wing taken off and a bigger engine put in it. Um, and the, the Spitfire was sort of showing the way for what um, the new breed of, of, of fighters was going to be. Um, and the development of the Hurricane wasn't going to make it much faster. Um, so he started essentially doodling out what he thought the next stage would be before there was any requirement for it from the government. Um, and he came up with this 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 aircraft, which was a little bit bigger than the um, than the Hurricane, um, but weighed considerably more. It was big and it was strong, and that was sort of his obsession was to make strong aircraft that could that could bring the pilot home. Um, and the whole idea behind it was the 400 mile an hour barrier, so the the Spitfire and the Hurricane could do about 350 360 miles an hour. Um, but the next big step in, in aircraft was this 400-mile-an-hour fighter. And Sydney Cam had been responsible for the RAF's first 200-mile-an-hour fighter and its first 300-mile-an-hour fighter. So he kind of wanted to do the 400-mile-an-hour the one as well. So he, he developed this aircraft that had two different variants, but one of, one, one of them became the, the Typhoon. 
So you've got to tell us when was it used and who used it? Um, so it, it first flew in 1940 um, and it was sort of flown all the way through to the end of the war. Um, so just a little bit of background. You had two different variants of it. You had a Rolls-Royce powered version that had something called a, a Rolls-Royce Vulture in the front, um, which had a nasty tendency to always be on fire. Um, and that aircraft was called the Tornado and it was cancelled quite quickly. Um, but the Typhoon, when it first flew in 1940, um, it's... Uh, it performed as it was expected to. Um, and then the Battle of Britain came along and they decided that they needed to concentrate on the current frontline fighters. So it was quietly shelved until the outcome of the battle was clear. Um, and then testing started in earnest from the end of 1940 through 1941, when it started to be delivered to the squadrons. Um, and it just served with the RAF in, in Northwestern Europe. So you by, at its height, you had the majority of the squadrons were RAF. You had three Royal Canadian Aircraft squadrons. Royal Canadian Aircraft, Royal Canadian Air Force. I'm going to have my <laughs> Canadian passport revoked for that one. Um, and one New Zealand um, squadron as well. So it, it's, it, it sort of built itself up through the war, but it, it was not without, um, not without problems along the way, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, why do they even need to go down this route if they've got the hurricane? Well, the, the hurricane is, like I said, it's it's quite an old idea. So it's 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 basically tubes and fabric, um, and you can't really take it much faster without it literally ripping the fabric apart. So it's got lovely Irish linen over the rear fuselage, um, and it's you know it's it's you know it's nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties thinking. Um, and if you're going to go faster, you're going to go stronger. You're going to carry sort of more and bigger guns and bombs and rockets, you need something that's a little bit more beefy than, than the, the venerable old hurricane. The irony was the hurricane then served all the way through the war anyways, but the thinking was they needed to move, move forward um, and make this all metal um, stress-skinned aircraft. Um, just, be, you know, just because if they're going to put this massive Napier Sabre engine in the front of it with 2,000 horsepower, um, it needed to be able to cope with it. And they just thought that this massive engine with this big aircraft was going to be the fastest all singing all dancing dogs bollocks of an aircraft that was out there do you know what let's talk a bit technical things um let's talk about the engine okay wasn't it just shit <laughs> <laughs> tell it like it is a leader <laughs> so this is this is one of the two questions i get asked the most about it, it was you know wasn't the napier saver terrible and shouldn't it have been scrapped um Initially, yes. Um, so just to explain what it is, it's massive. It, this thing weighs about a ton. Um, it is, has 24 cylinders, 36 liters, 2,200 horsepower. Um, and it comes from this company called Napier, which had, had made um, the engine for the first supermarine racing um, um, seaplanes. Um, if you go to Brooklyn's, you can see their racing cars. You know, they, they were a high performance outfit. But they, they sort of came up with this idea for this big H24 engine, which would produce incredible amounts of power. Um, so if you think the, the Merlin that's in the Spitfire and the Hurricane in 1940 has got about 1,100 horsepower. When this, the Sabre was built sort of three years before, it had twice as much power. Um, so using the, the age-old maxim that more power is always better, they continued with this design. Um, and it's, it's different to a, a Merlin in that it's, it's got something called sleeve valves, 
which uh, to go really technical on you is where the piston goes back and forth there's a, a sleeve that turns sort of through about a quarter turn that opens and closes the valves so it means there's sort of less moving parts within the engine but it means you get a lot more power out of it um, and its big problem was that it was British um, and the manufacturing quality of the, of the initial runs of engines was terrible um, you know they the, they were not cleaning the engines out so there was all kinds of metal shavings in it which would then block up the oil system and cause the engine to seize the sleeve valves themselves are very precision engineered uh, bits of kit and when we get you ladies down to, to see the, the unit, um, you can have a look at some of these things. They're, they need to be perfectly round. And if they drop out of true, they just jam up the engine and the engine stops. Um, so they had big trouble with, with all these quality control issues. Um, and it was just causing the, the engine to, you know, without much warning, stop. And then you suddenly have a one ton bit of weight at the wrong end of the airplane. Um, and you know, at, at the time, most of the typhoon operations were at quite low levels. So if the engine was gonna stop, you didn't have any time to get out of it. Um, so what, what happened was politics got involved. Um, the Air Ministry and the Ministry of Supply basically told Napier that they had to sort this out. And if they didn't, they would. Napier didn't, because um, the engines were only lasting about 25 hours, which is nothing for, a, for an aircraft engine. So they brought in English Electric, which helped sort out the um, quality control issues. And then Bristol's, who made um, other aircraft engines, radial engines. But they had a lot of experience in um, sleeve valves. So they, they were brought in to help change the design of the sleeves. And sort of by late 1943, um, it, was all, it was good. It was a very reliable, very robust engine. The problem was it was being tested in combat. The same problem with the aircraft itself. So there was a lot of engine failures early on, um, which sort of gave, didn't help the aircraft's re reputation much. And which I'm sure the other part that you're about to get to didn't help the reputation either. <laughs> Did the tail fall off? Yes. Can we move Well, that's on? not good, is it? <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, we're going to get, we're going to get... <laughs> Oh, you said underdog, not shit show. <laughs> <laughs> shit engine, tail falling off. What else no, let, happens to this plane? Let's let, let's let him put it in context for us because we're always banging on about context. Go on, Matt. Well, shut up. No, it, this this trust me. These these are the two things we 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 typhoon nuts face all the time. So yes, the tail did fall off um, twenty seven times. Um, if we're going to be um, precise, to, with the cost of about um, 25 pilots, which is which is pretty terrible. So what the, the problem is, you've got um, aircraft going regularly through the 400 and 500 mile an hour uh, barrier in a dive. And that was a realm of physics that nobody really understood. Um, and the Typhoon is basically a beefed up hurricane. So it's got a big, thick wing on it. And when you're going really fast at high altitude, the last thing you need is a big, thick wing. Um, so that was causing the airflow over the wing to do lots of things that, that the guys at Hawkers didn't really understand. Um, and the, the chief test pilot was a chap called Philip Lucas. Um, and he, in, a, in an interview in the 70s, made the comment that they basically discovered aerial compressibility um, but didn't realize that they'd made this discovery because they were too busy trying to fix it. Um, and what was happening to the aircraft was, um, so basically whenever an aircraft flies, 
it doesn't stay the same shape that you think it is. It, it stretches and it twists um, and it moves around. And that's the way they're designed. Um, and it has something called harmonic resonance, which means everything's shaking to a certain frequency. And the problem with the Typhoon was it was shaking at a frequency which was basically causing the tail to snap off um, in certain circumstances. And it wasn't a case of the aircraft was getting old and beaten up and it went. It would just go even on a new aircraft. So what they were discovering was they didn't know what was happening. Um, and they, they, they took you know, typical belt and braces measures. They, they basically beefed up the, where the tail attaches to the fuselage. Um, they put a big steel band around it to hold it on. And then they put 20 fish plates on it, which basically it was like an outward sign that it was strengthened. Um, but their tails were still coming off. And, you know, wing commander Tim Elkington was a lovely chap who um, was a big supporter of the, the Typhoon project, um, said that he flew his aircraft to Oxford and they put they put these fish plates on it and he didn't think it did anything, but what it did give him was a fantastic night out in Oxford. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it took them quite a while to figure out what was, what was going on. Um, and then two, two things happened. Um, an, an Irishman called Killy Kilpatrick on his, one of his first flights in a typhoon um, dove his aircraft down to just under 500 miles an hour and the, and the tail came off. Um, and he managed to get out of the aircraft because he, for some reason, had been up at about 30,000 feet. So once he was picked up from the cow field that he landed in, he was whisked off to, to Langley, um, the Hawker headquarters, and to discuss what had happened. And that was the first indication they had of the sort of feedback that the pilot was getting before the tail came off. Um, and then about a year later, another pilot reported some strange vibrations in his aircraft after a dive bombing attack. And they took that aircraft to Farnborough and shook it to pieces. And they realized that the aircraft was balanced wrong. So under the control column, you've got a big weight. And at the tail, you've got another weight. And that helps balance it out. They essentially doubled the two weights. And that cured the problem. Um, but it unfortunately took, you know, 27 lost aircraft and quite a few pilots to, to figure that out. But all of this learning would then go into the next generation of aircraft that would come along, especially when they got into the jet age, that these sort of uh, harmonics that would come through. Unfortunately, it would catch to Havilland out with metal fatigue in the Comet later as well. Which I suppose answers what was going to be our next question, which is why did they bother carrying on if it was such a nightmare? Well, the... The reason they, they carried on with it wasn't so much for the science was because the aircraft is starting to prove itself as actually pretty good. Um, you think, okay, so the engine stops and the tail falls off that, you know, why, why, why would you want to get in that thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, and its reputation when it was going to the squadrons wasn't great, but it had a couple of things with it. It, you know, it had four big 20 millimeter cannons on it that worked. Um, and it was incredibly fast. And it was most importantly faster than the new German FW190 at low level and could outturn it. So when, when the Germans showed up with the 190, which is a truly great little aircraft, it was better than a Spitfire. And they were doing these hit and run raids all along the South coast. And the only thing that could catch it was the Typhoon. Um, so they put all the Typhoon squadrons on the South coast to sort of counter all these raids coming in. And it was starting to rack up you know, no, noticeable amounts of, of kills. 
And then you've got some quite aggressive young pilots being put in charge of squadrons and they're wanting to make names for themselves. Uh, one of them was named Roland B. Beaumont, who was a, in charge of 609 Squadron. Um, and he was had experience of flying night intruder flights over France. And he started doing the same thing with his, his typhoons. Um, and they had something seriously against trains, um, a, a pathological hatred that the official squadron history calls it, because they would fly over France and, and Belgium and Holland and do nothing but shoot up trains, um, which was was great for the war effort, but it sort of made everybody wonder what, what experience these guys had had on a train, which made them so... Um, prevalent to go out and destroy as many of them as they could <laughs> but it, that that was really it it you know despite these faults it was actually you know very useful for for the the problem that they had which was this this sort of fw190 issue um and then as we'll we'll go on to, to chat about you can suddenly start putting vast amounts of bombs and rockets underneath the wings and you've got a very impressive ground attack aircraft well, this brings us to the next question, funnily enough, which you've always, you mentioned it earlier, which is Normandy. So how does Normandy fall into this whole narrative of the Hawk Typhoon? So Normandy is really the, the typhoon's moment. And it, it's taken, you know, as we've talked about, a lot of pain to get here. And through 1943, um, the RAF goes through a lot of changes. Um, one of the main ones is the creation of the Second Tactical Air Force, um, which is which his whole purpose is to support the coming invasion. Um, and at the tip of the spear of this is, is the typhoon squadrons because through 1943, they've started putting bombs under the wings. They started off with little 250 pounders. They went up to 500 pounders. And in the end, they were carrying two 1000 pound bombs um, under the wings. Um, and through 1943, they're attacking the, the V1 sites as they start to be built. They're attacking radar stations. Um, and they start to realize that this actually, as this sort of tactical striking arm, is really useful. So more Typhoon squadrons start coming online. And in 1944, you start adding the 60-pound RP3 rocket, which is what most of the newsreels then, then focus on. And you get the entry of the rocket-firing Typhoon, which is a quite a fearsome, if slightly inaccurate, beast. So coming up to Normandy, the Typhoon squadrons are tasked with knocking out the radar stations, and they call it the radar war in the histories. And it's a very costly battle because they are attacking low-level, heavily defended targets. Um, and there's quite a few typhoons lost during this period. Um, so squadrons are slightly understrength by the time we get to the 6th of June. Um, and what you have then is 18 um, typhoon squadrons, all based along the south coast, nine of which will be um, used in, in, in sort of defense and nine of which will be used in attack. And the first aircraft over the beaches are actually the Canadian squadrons, um, attacking the hard points just behind um, Sword, Gold, and Juno beaches. And they're flying in at low level with 1,000-pound bombs um, and dropping them on the pillboxes. Um, and then through the rest of the day, um, you know, because the, the beaches are under naval cover, the typhoons are actually released into to armed reconnaissance, and they just go hunting. Um, and they're shooting up um, German HQs. They're, they're attacking troop movements, basically anything that's moving behind the lines um, that they're looking for and attacking it. 
and unfortunately they you know they've they they prove the the falsity of the myth of the Luftwaffe not showing up because they get bounced quite quite a number of times by um, the Luftwaffe and lose um, about six aircraft to, to air to air action. Um, but that's really this sort of moment where in the public eye, the typhoon um, starts becoming noticeable as this, this big beast, big noisy beast that fires these rockets. Um, and the newsreels go mad for it. And you can look at the old Pathé um, footage of, you know, the, the RAS flying artillery and, and things like that. Um, and the, they look like they're, they're doing incredible work. Um, you know, po post-war research shows that they didn't destroy um, as many tanks or um, trucks as, as was expected. Well, actually, many tanks with the rockets. Um, because, you know, when you're dropping your, your rockets or your bombs, you see a big explosion and lots of smoke. You claim the tank you were aiming at. Um, but it's very hard to hit... Um, a small, you know, a small target from an aircraft that's moving around at 500 miles an hour with something that's essentially a firework with 60 pounds of high explosive on the end. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of this sort of narrative that it, we have um, a lot of debate going on at the moment. And there's been some great academic work about how, how many tanks were actually destroyed by typhoons. Um, but the thing you've got to remember is a tank is only a, as effective if it has a crew, it has fuel, and it has ammunition. And the typhoon's psychological effect would be that when they started to attack, experienced crews would know just to button down the hatches and wait for them to go away. But inexperienced crews would bail out. Um, and that's where they would be getting caught with, with the shrapnel from the rockets and the bombs. Um, and then once the rockets and the bombs were gone, the typhoons would go looking for German trucks. They'd go looking for the horse-drawn um, ammunition trains, um, and they would shoot those up with their cannon for fun. And that's where they were most effective: was taking out the, the tail, stopping you know stopping movement, and you know just call, causing wholesale slaughter behind behind the lines. Um, and you know it's for for as, as great as um, you know these eight rockets firing off, and they look on film and things like that. They weren't terribly accurate because they're being shot from an aircraft that's being shot at with a very amped up pilot in it, trying very hard not to get hit while still hit something. And all of these different things make unguided weapons very inaccurate. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Tell me, there's got to be some sort of really positive ending for this because... 
you know, obviously it started out really shitty with a shit engine and a tail falling off. Then it goes to Normandy and it seems to be quite successful. But does it end well? Well, the reputation turns around. So from the troops on the ground loved the typhoon. So the Canadians, when they would get in trouble, they had a saying that they would whistle for a tiffy because they knew if they got on the radio, the typhoons would show up very quickly and help them out. Um, at the Battle of Mortan on the, the 7th of August, the, there was an American division caught on a hill and the typhoons with, with artillery support helped stop the German advance. Um, and one um, 247 squadron pilot got shot down um, and he was returned to his squadron by the Americans two days later in a state of um, alcohol poisoning because they were so happy for the work that he did. They just kept plying him with Calvados and beer. Um, so, the, you know, the, the story does turn around. And especially as you sort of move through the latter half of the war, and especially into 1945, um, the reputation of the aircraft is, is, is renewed. The problem is it's been replaced. You know, all the problems that the typhoon had went straight into the Hawker's drawing board and the Typhoon Mark II came out, which was renamed the Tempest. Um, and it was possibly the fastest piston engine aircraft of the Second World War. And it was everything that the typhoon should have been. It worked at high altitude. It was great at low level. Um, it was responsible for, I think, nearly half of all the V1s destroyed that were sent at, sent at London from the southeast. Um, so with the, the Tempest there and then the, the aircraft that came after it, the Fury also on the drawing board, um, when the war ended, the Typhoon was no longer needed. Um, so with you know, wonderful lack of foresight, they were all scrapped. Um, they were flown back to England and, and chopped up. Well, this, this quite nicely leads on to the next bit because you currently have a project on the go. Which involves, obviously, the Hawker Typhoon. So can you tell us a bit about this project? I would love to. So Go for it. My, tell everyone. <laughs> my other hat, and this is going to become clear, is I'm the, the public relations manager for the Hawker Typhoon Preservation Group. Um, and as the title suggests, we are trying to preserve a Hawker Typhoon. And our aircraft is um, we have the sort of rear fuselage of an aircraft called RB396, which was shot down in Holland in 1945. Um, and we are restoring her to flight um, because there is only one typhoon left in the world, and that's in the RAF Museum. And no one has ever seen a typhoon fly um, since about 1947. So our aim is to rebuild RB396 with the Sabre engine, which we have, um, to flight as a living memorial for the, the Typhoon's crews. Um, air, ground, the men and women who, who built and worked them, um, because it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic forgotten story and we, we believe they need, they need this memorial and there'll be nothing better than to see one of their aircraft flying again. Because you know, 664 pilots were killed flying the Typhoon um, and their, their graves are scattered all over all over Europe. Many are in Runnymede because they have no known grave. And there's one memorial to them um, at Neues Bracage. So our whole aim is to put that right and to show people just how incredible this aircraft was and that it didn't always have an engine that stopped and it didn't ha always have the tail falling off. Um, and that these, these brave men who got in, into them and went to war in them um, in the most dangerous of, of circumstances where they're flying against walls of flak, 
know, this this is a tale that needs to be told. And we believe a flying typhoon is going to do it. What can people do if they want to get involved? Well, they, they can they can visit our, our website, um, which is hawkertyphoon.com. Um, and you, you can read all about the project on there. We have um, the RB396 Supporters Club, which is the, the sort of the easiest way you can support. And that starts um, at about £25 a year. So we're, we're a registered UK charity. So any of your donations, if you're a taxpayer, can get gift aid on it as well. Um, and basically through public support, um, we've started rebuilding this aircraft. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get on to tell her story in a minute. But you know, if if people want to see something other than a Spitfire flying again or a hurricane flying again, you know, we we believe this typhoon project is probably one of the most unique warbird projects that's going on in the world. Um, and you know, we're we're trying to make it as open as it can, so people who get involved um, can can see as much and as 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 we can show them. Um, and yeah, you know, we're we're sort of changing up the way we're working at the moment um, to to go focusing on some some slightly higher higher backers so that we can accelerate things. Um, so if anyone out there has five million pounds that wants to, <laughs> to don- donate to a charity, please please give me an email. Um, what, what can you say to make people fall in love with her? What do you know about her? So three nine six is essentially a completely ordinary typhoon. Um, she was built in late 1944. She was delivered on, on New Year's Eve 1944 to 174 Squadron in, in Holland at Vocal. Um, and, she, you know, she, she didn't fly at, at, at Dieppe. She didn't fly at Normandy uh, at, on D-Day. So, you know, that kind of puts people off. But what she did do was she flew in support of Operation Varsity, which was the largest airborne operation um, in history. Um, but the most important thing about her are the people that flew her. Um, and that's, that's why we're sort of so happy that um, the Dutch chemical company who bought the wreck decided to keep this piece of her, um, to turn her into a shower, believe it or not. Um, mm. and, and when that didn't happen, they gave it to a museum before it came to us with the proviso we have to make her fly again. Um, and, you know, the, and just, you know, those, those people are, are the, are the reason why this this aircraft and all typhoon stories are interesting um so we we started at the beginning her test pilot was a chap called lawrence pinky stark um because all rf pilots need a decent nickname and i think pinky's one of the best um apparently he always had a rosy face so that's why he got that <laughs> um but he was he joined uh Beaumont 609 squadron which was this you know this uber um, typhoon squadron that was full of Belgians who did things like shooting up um, uh, SIPO SD headquarters in, in Amsterdam, in um, Brussels, um, shooting up trains and, and basically being, you know, one of the most formidable like, typhoon outfits that, that there were. Um, but uh, Pink, Pinky uh, was shot down um, in July 1944 and he was helped by the resistance to escape and sent up to Gloucesters where the typhoons were built. Um, to test fly um, these new aircraft as they're coming off the line. He flew RB twice and and sent her on her on her merry way. Um, and, you know, Stark is, is fascinating because his, his career was almost exclusively on, on typhoons during the later half. And he was a squadron leader. Um, he, you know, he later flew on, on the, the the tragic raid that, that sunk the Cap Arcona, um, which I, I know you guys had the excellent podcast about it earlier in the year. Um, and you know, so through him, we have all these these fascinating links. 
But then these links continue even more so when we get to her ATA pilot, who I think is the reason why I'm involved in the project because her name was Anna Leska. She was a Pole um, and she is well, my hero, really. Um, she, she flew for um, Polish Army High Command um, during, the, during the invasion of Poland. Um, she flew little light aircraft um, delivering messages um, to the, the frontline units. Um, and after they were overrun, her and a friend snuck onto an airfield at night and stole an aircraft. They didn't know how much fuel it had, but all they knew is they had to get south as quickly as they could. So at night, they took off with no lights and flew south and just kept flying until the fuel ran out. Um, and luckily, they'd gotten to Romania by that point. And she escaped across Europe through to the south of France. Um, and when she got to, um, to Paris, she rejoined um, with her Polish Air Force colleagues. And she was formally commissioned into the, the Polish Air Force and was one of only two women to be um, allowed to wear the Polish unif Air Force uniform. Um, she was eventually joined the ATA in, in the UK. Um, and then she ended up sort of delivering over 2,000 aircraft, which is, which is remarkable. Um, and she was a bit of a feisty character. I didn't tell you this yesterday, Alina, but she had a, a running <laughs> feud with another ATA pilot, um, a, a Chilean pilot called Margot Dunhel, I think Dunhel, her name was. Um, and they famously had a, a mock dogfight over Hamble. Um, when the Chilean cut in front of her in a queue and they were both um, told that if, if one of them didn't apologize to the other, they'd both be kicked out. So the Chil Chilean apologized in front of the boss. And then when she walked out, she threatened to punch Anna's teeth in. Um, and they never forgave each other. Even many years later at a reunion, they were still found in a corner shouting at each other. Um, and, you know, it's, she's, she's, just, she's just amazing. Um, I love her. I really, really love her. I, when you told me the story about it yesterday, I was like, this woman is epic and we need to commemorate her so much. She, she's, she's wonderful. But it's you know, her family as well. And this is where I get to, to, to murder a Polish name. I'm sorry. Um, because her brother was Kamarez Leski. Did I get that right? No, I didn't. I got the, no, you the G in the middle. Oh. <laughs> Tell me how to say it, Alina. Kazimierz. Yes, that. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, so Anna's brother stayed, um, stayed in Poland um, and he was, he was a musketeer. Um, his codename was Brandl and he was one of the intelligence officers for the home army um, and most likely um, worked with um, Christina Skarbek, who um, Claire Mully wrote that fantastic biography, The, the Spy Who Loved About. Um, and it's sort of one degree of separation um, from this aircraft takes us to, you know, to the Warsaw Uprising. And it's these these little tangible links that you know this story we can tell that the people that touched this aircraft, you know, their families were sort of involved everywhere, um, and you know that's and you know that's that's just the you know the, the just the delivery pilot. And you think you know we we are so fortunate to have this this link to Anna um, and her family that um, we we try very hard to trumpet it, and we're also very fortunate that. Um, uh, she had a very famous photograph taken of her um, by Lee Miller on her first assignment for Vogue, um, sat in a Spitfire. So we we um, we share that, and we're hoping to do something with the Lee Miller archive soon um, to sort of champion um, these incredible women. I'm before, so excited! Before so the aircraft excited. gets handed over to a bunch of boys again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about this because it would just be so amazing to 
will help you bring her alive, literally. I mean, she was alive, but you know what I mean, historically alive. And, you know, for, for her, it was just another typhoon in her logbook. You know, the day she delivered it, she delivered um, a Spitfire and a Mosquito, I think. Um, so it was, you know, it was just another day at the office for her. But for us, it's, it's, it's amazing that we, and we're very fortunate that, um, that Anna delivered it. Um, as, as we are with, with her other three pilots, of, of whom one is still alive. Because um, a regular pilot was a guy, a Canadian called Frank Johnson. Uh, was a bit of a lad um, and constantly got turned o- turned over for promotion because he kept telling his squadron leader exactly what he thought. So a true Canadian, really. Um, and Frank flew her for for most of her career. He painted his girlfriend's name on the nose, Sheila, which was sort of gold down one side. Um, and then he was shot down in another aircraft um, and was very badly injured. His back was broken. Um, and luckily, he was he was saved by um, by uh, some Germans who took him to a farmhouse, um, where the, the the German lady cared for him, cleaned his cleaned his wounds, um, kept calling him Liebchen, um, and he he was he was repatriated. Where, having left his girlfriend four years before, um, while he was in hospital having his back rebroke, um, he called for a nurse and in walked his girlfriend. Um, and they then married when they got back to Canada, which was, oh, which was great. That. Well, can you tell our listeners before we finish, can you tell our listeners the story um, about the, the pilot walking into the bar? Yes. So the, the top scoring Hawker Typhoon Ace is a chap called Johnny, uh, Johnny Baldwin. Um, and his story is, 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 is really quite amazing. He, um, um, his 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 early days and his birth are shrouded in mystery. The official story says he was born in, in Bristol in 1918. The unofficial story was it was actually a year before on the Isle of Wight when his parents had a romance. Um, and then they then doctored the paperwork to, um, <laughs> to, to, to make him legitimate a bit later. Um, but he, um, he, he flew typhoons with 609 Squadron as well. Um, and he was just the most incredible pilot. He, he would eventually go on to get 15 confirmed victories. Um, but he, he was, he, he was an interesting chap because he, he seems to have been quite, quite shy as well. Um, he, he walked into a, a bar, um, in, in, in Belgium, I believe with, with the squadron doctor. Um, and he saw this, this, this woman across the bar and was smitten. And he turned to the doctor and said, I, I, I don't know what to say to her. And the doctor looked at him and just said, you're Johnny Baldwin. You're the most famous pilot around here. You walk up to her and say, hi, I'm Johnny Baldwin. Um, and that was his line and it worked and they married and they had a couple of kids. Um, and, you know, it's, we're, we're very fortunate to have, have his family um, as, as firm backers of the project as well. Um, and, you know, it's, it'll be great to be able to fly, fly the aircraft in, in his colors as well one day. Um, because he had a he had a very sad fate. I didn't tell you this yesterday, Lena, that he um he stayed on in the RAF and insisted on continuing flying. And when the Korean War broke out, he he um uh, he asked for a transfer to the U.S. Air Force to fly um, F-86 Sabres. And on his seventh mission, he disappeared over North Korea. Um, and no nobody knows what happened to him. Um, you know, the, the most likely. Um, event is he, he he was killed but unfortunately with famous pilots um, and unknown finishes there's lots of conspiracy theories about him which um, are all 
you know, rubbish basically. But unfortunately, we have oh to spend a lot of time debunking those that he did not end up in a in a Russian in a Russian interrogation camp, as some of these crazy stories that people like spreading do. But he was, you know, he he was only in his early 30s when he when he was killed, having survived. You know, nobody actually knows how many typhoon missions he flew. His logbook says 150, but unofficially, because he didn't write down every time he flown, because he kept being told not to fly, it was more likely um, 200 plus, which is a remarkable um, run of luck, really, for more than anything else, because very few typhoon pilots racked up those sorts of numbers. Do you want to know something? I kind of wish you didn't tell me that because I had this beautiful romance story in my mind of these two people getting married. And now I find out that he disappeared over North Korea. Was it North Korea you said? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's I feel, I feel okay. Ro- I feel wrong. It's, it's un- un- unfortunately that, yeah. That ending is is all all too all too common. Um, yeah, unfo- and, it is. It isn't in our fields, unfortunately. You want a nice, beautiful romance story for about sixty seconds, and then it uh, all goes to shit, really. Well, we we do have one lovely story, which is um, one just before our aircraft was was shot down. Um, Frank Frank had Frank had lent his aircraft to. to a little chap called um, Sidney Russell Smith, who, when you see pictures of him, he looks about twelve. Um, and his nickname was Boy, um, and he flew RB once, um, damaged it, um, which was why Frank wasn't flying it when it, it got shot down. But Sydney is still with us. Um, he lives over in Suffolk, um, and um, we we realised that we we had never actually made him a member of our supporters club. So just bef- just while lockdown was happening, we we heard that he was having a little little bit of a difficult time coping with not seeing family. So we did a we did a video for him telling him about all the latest um, um, all the latest happenings on the rebuild of his of his typhoon um, and we, we we made him a, an honorary lifetime member of, of the supporters club and I was just recently sent a little video of, of him they presented him with the the pack and the and the badge that we we sent to him in front of um, the 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 other residents the care home and he got a big round of applause um, and uh, we're we're really looking forward to going up and 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 seeing him once, once the restrictions are 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 such that we're able to to visit. But um, we're in touch with 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 his care home, and we've we've just sent him um, a print as well of that's one of our supporters had commissioned of the rebuilt aircraft flying over the museum at Duxford, and they very kindly donated one to us and another one to send to Sydney. So he should be getting that today, and we we can't wait to see what he thinks of it. Oh, thank that is such a, that I think we should finish on that really beautiful positive note because that was just that's really lovely. So listen, Matt, thank you, thank you so much for coming to join us, talk to us about the shitty engine and the shitty tail. <laughs> um, but then having something a bit positive at how well the Hawker Typhoon performed in Normandy to obviously that beautiful love story and um, Anna Leshka, who for me she blows my mind and she is just awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Join us tomorrow when Robin Osborne will be talking to us all about homosexual imagery in ancient art. Really fascinating chat. Don't miss that one. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.